Today on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, we're going to talk about an album that includes a couple songs that everyone on the planet knows. Am I right, Marcus, or am I right? You are right. I don't think we could even argue with answer B because you're right, too. So <laughs> There is no answer B. <laughs> I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And we are talking and laughing about Back in Black from ACDC, the subject of this week's episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We talk about this album off the podcasts more than we've ever talked about it on it, haven't we? Yes, indeed. It's one of those albums like Van Halen 1, like Led Zeppelin Mm -hmm. 1, that changed how people think about music. ACDC was starting to break through with Highway to Hell, but Back in Black, a new singer, all of this press behind the change in the band, I think, was one of those things that piqued a lot of curiosity to see if, hey, could this band do what they were doing with that really badass front man before who passed away, Bon Scott. Can this Brian Johnson guy do it? You know, that was one of the major rock and roll questions in the time between when Scott died and when they released this album, Back in Black. And it has gone on to sell tons and tons of records. It's one of the biggest selling albums of all time. We can cite all the records, and we probably will at some point. But the main point of this record is that, and in my mind, it is the ultimate rock and roll phoenix of an album. The band was dead when Bond died, and there was no way to know that the perfect guy was out there. Or maybe they kind of knew he was out there, but didn't know to go get him right away. Your guy just died. Killed himself basically with alcohol, Bond Scott. I think it was an accidental death, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think he intentionally uh, tried well, to drink himself to Alcoholics death, never but... intend to kill themselves, but that's what happens. That's true. They were really making a lot of noise, I think. The radio stations that I was listening to in Denver at the time were, you know, starting to play Highway to Hell when it came out and some of the songs that were on that album as well. They weren't getting anything near the play that uh, Back in Black was about to get because that's one of those albums that changed everything for rock and roll for kids listening especially at 14 years old 13 years old 15 years old you've got your hormones and that's, going and that's crazy. how old you were you were and 14, I was, I was 14 right? and we all heard it and i can't remember which song i heard first on the radio but i remember looking at the radio with my jaw dropped going whoa and my brother was like i want that record so. If you don't think that this was an amazing comeback, an amazing, unbelievable all-time comeback, you got to look at the timing of this thing, Marcus. Bond dies 19 February 1980, and then this album, which was recorded like in April and May, they figured out what they were going to do, and then was rush released end of July in 1980. It was it was a little more than six months, right? Or right around there. Yeah. It's amazing that they were able to do it, and the reasons why we think that was possible and not alien work. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> it's aliens. Well, they had a pretty good run with Highway to Hell, 
And so they were thinking they were on a roll. They had a producer who obviously knew what to do with them in good old Robert John Lang, a.k.a. Mutt Lang. And let's talk about Mutt Lang for a minute before we get into the uh, the nitty-gritty of the album and everything. He was already an accomplished producer. He'd already worked with ACDC. We can talk about some of the things that he was part of. He put a, a lot of himself into a lot of albums starting in 1972, and a lot of them did not much or nothing. But... His hand in recording and releasing and producing bands like The Motors and the Boomtown Rats' first album, The Rumors' Max album, Michael Stanley, who recently passed away, who had an album, Cabin Fever's his big album, and that put him on the map and led him to a, a lifelong career in Cleveland radio. Savoy Brown, he mm-hmm. produced, The Outlaws Playing to Win, he produced, and we mentioned Highway to Hell. Mm-hmm. And so and he did the Boomtown Rats, the fine art of surfacing, too. So mm-hmm. he, apparently he didn't like Mondays either. So he'd already had a pretty good career for a producer in the 70s, including producing ACDC's biggest album to date. I really think that his role and his part in this and being the producer helped to bridge between the Bond Scott stuff and the Bond Scott feels and production ideas and create Back in Black the beginning of the Brian Johnson era. I think it was crucial. And I think if you asked him about it, he would probably agree. And the money that he pulled just from back in black sales you know it's probably the size of a small third world country's economy i really think that's you know you could look at the numbers it's probably it's upwards of a quarter of a billion dollars in net worth after all that and his role helped to also pull together the shards of the beginnings the songs that were beginning didn't talked about a lot through the years you and i've talked about it a little bit while we were preparing this week but even in the last several months we've talked about the songs the roots of a lot of songs uh, parts of songs were already written and in progress when bond passed they had two recordings with Bon Scott before he passed away for the Back in Black sessions, and I think those demos or recordings that they had of Bon and his ideas set the tone for the album, even though he wasn't there. And I think it gave the rest of the band an idea of what direction they needed to go in, and... Mutt Lang being the producer and the type of person he is where he could put these personalities together and help them find what they need to find. I think having him, like you said, is a huge key in it. And he was what was able to keep them guided in the right direction during this time of mourning and i'm sure it was intense as hell in that studio i can't imagine i mean seriously they were together since they were kids bonds your mate you see him deteriorating you know it's bad but you don't expect that right you don't expect that to happen and you know the unexpected will happen when you go to the extremes in anything even things that aren't drug and alcohol related you drive too fast you could have a problem even if you're straight as a razor right i'm just saying well angus young recently said that they hadn't, you know, put pen to paper. They hadn't done anything. That the Bond never, as he put it, never really got a chance to contribute to ACDC's Back in Black. And there's been a lot of controversy through the decades about that. You know, we've talked about them, you know, possibly having the, the demos of that. And people have said they've heard it. There are people who've gone public, quote unquote, to make sure that the world knows that these songs were Bonds and all this other stuff. And I think it doesn't matter. I think you get down to it. The story really is that born of grief and maybe at that point the necessity internally to keep going 
the brothers, Angus and Malcolm, pull it together, like you said, with Mutt. They find a way to heal their hearts, and maybe putting it all out there on Back in Black really was a big part for them personally in healing at the time. Look, you're in a band that's just about the crest. Your, your singer dies. Maybe you're thinking, well, maybe this really is it. Let's do this album and see what happens. Now, I don't know that that was the thinking, but, you know, you could see where that could be a, an approach or a point of view for the guys going in to make this album. Who knew? Ray, have you ever met the guys in ACDC? Oh, hell yes. Have you never seen the picture of me and Angus next to each other? <laughs> he really is tiny. And, of course, I'm 6'4". I've met those guys, and I was um, fortunate enough on one of the tours, I think it was the Razor's Edge tour, to have Brian call me on the Rocker show, call me from the plane, flying over to the U.S. to start the tour. And when they got here, they needed help to make that video for Money Talks, you know, the one where the money's falling from the rafters. It was filmed at the Spectrum here in Philadelphia. We were there all day. We recruited the crowd to come in and be part of the early shoot. And then people came back. And of course, they did the shoot during the show. And they did what you might expect for a video shoot, you know, do a thing, stop, retake, stop, retake. And people were there. People, A lot of people remember it quite well. And the funny thing, here's the quick uh, funny thing, is from that video shoot, there were these little dollar bills they created that had Angus's face on it, you know, and uh, I never got one until recently. My pal Bullwinkle sent me one and he had it put into a block of glass. So I got one in glass from the Money Talks video shoot. And it feels so good to be able to have been part of that. And because of that, I just feel close to them, you know? Yeah. It's just do. The reason I asked you if you ever met him is because when you met him, did they seem like the guys who would roll over after tragedy or did they have that kind of we really love what we're going to do and we're going to find a way to make it happen vibe to them or energy to them? You know how they struck me, Marcus? It's just regular people who miss their kids because they're on the road and they're away. There's uh, Malcolm showing pictures from his wallet to my ex, telling him about how much he missed his kids. And they're just really down-to-earth, cool people who have regular concerns, a lot of the same concerns that you and I might have. I got no sense of that, the whole thing about uh, post-Bon Scott, because when I met them, it was 86-ish and forward. They seem to have that musical drive about them where they're the, the types of lads that uh, <laughs> wanted to uh, play music and that's what they were going to do, play music. Well, I think ultimately that that's behind the decision to plow forward. I would love to know why they felt they had to do it so soon, so quickly. Was it because the nature of the wound to the heart is such that it's collective and you want to address it right away because you found the guy? I'll tell you what, Brian Johnson's going to tell us a lot. He's got a book coming out. He's going to tell us a lot more. So once we get the book, we should probably revisit this and the whole ACDC story. But yep. he is an interesting guy and strikes me as the most down to earth. His uh, TV show where he interviews other veterans of the road really should that he's just a cool fucking guy and they were damn lucky to find him he was in a band called Jordy
the Geordies are from a certain part of England. Mark Knopfler and his brother are Geordies. I saw him on Brian's TV show and they were there. I forget what area it is. Sorry, I'm having a brain fart. Mm -hmm. But the way it came together was the kind of thing that would just blow your mind if you were writing it for a Hollywood movie, somebody might say, that's a little bit of a stretch to put the album out within six months, don't you think? But I heard this from D. Snyder when he worked at WMMR, and he said that he was sitting down with the guys in ACDC once, and I can't remember who told him this, but they said that... Bon Scott had seen Brian Johnson play at a pub or sing at a pub somewhere in London or in the UK. And after the show had put his arms around Brian or an arm around Brian and said, if I ever die, this is the guy I want you to replace me with. I would say D's a reliable source for this kind of a thing, and he wouldn't put it out there if he didn't have it from a reliable person or somebody he trusted. That makes sense. Is it the uh, ACDC equivalent to the Mini Cooper comment by Mark Boland? I'm just, you know... The fates are funny, man. They the really fates are. really are funny, and maybe Bon Scott knew but never told the guys in the band that this was his path and this was what was going to happen to him, and right. it was a nonstop crash course into insanity, which it pretty much was, and we'll talk about that in an episode down the line. But maybe he knew, just like Mark Boland knew. You're right. Well, there may not have been a Mini Cooper involved, Marcus, but the death of Ronald Bon Scott did involve a Renault. They were out at a pub, club. It was uh, called the Music Machine. I think it still exists. He was out with his mates that night, and he fell asleep in a friend's car, and he was dead when they found him. It wasn't like he froze to death or anything, and they took him to the hospital, but he was already gone, and they said acute alcohol poisoning was the reason, and they classified it in very cheeky British terms as death by misadventure. <laughs> he drank too much. I know. Those were small cars, oh, too. Oh, mon dieu. Yeah. You are correct, sir. <laughs> Seen many of those in our travels through Europe, popular. I'm sitting here and I'm looking at a picture, East Dulwich, London. It's a picture of the house where they were partying or a place where they were partying where he died. And it looks so unremarkable from the outside. It's just like a brick duplex. Are there pictures of him in the Renault? Like, was he taken to the hospital uh, by ambulance with the police there or did his mates drive him? Research department. Yeah. They haven't done much in a while. But, you know, these are the questions that come up after we get started. Then we got to reach out to the research department to give us, uh, you know, uh, uh, an idea about whether these things are true or could be out there on the Internet while we're trying to do this episode. And this episode is all about Back in Black, ACDC's landmark album. How many has it sold, Marcus? Do you know? Over do any of us really know? I think it's over 25 million in the United States. Yeah. It's like the McDonald's sign. It just keeps going up and up and up and up. But yeah. And when we talk about the album, uh, I've never met anybody who doesn't like Back in Black or won't at least move to it. And if they don't like it, they don't hate it. And they'll listen to it and get through it. I think it's one of those songs that everybody knows. Knows, knows, knows. There's two layers of uh, fans on this one, Marcus. You know, the people who obviously everybody knows you shook me all night long or everybody knows Back in Black. They're one of the greatest rock songs that everybody knows. I've played it countless 
games and parties and all kinds of stuff. Then you get the next layer. Well, oh, oh, sure, everybody does that. Shoot the thrill or, you know, maybe, you know, have a drink on me. But the people who really are the ACDC fans are the ones that know all these songs, all 10 of them, as if they're on the back of their hand and tattooed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And when it comes to my musical heart, this album is all over and I know it all inside out. Yeah. I can listen to it anytime. And I think that the majority of people feel that way, at least 25 million in this country, right? Easily, oh, that's what it is. Plus million. Hold on, is the research department? They're getting back to us. Oh, wow. We asked. They answered pretty quickly on that, and it's it's pretty simple. Twenty five million in the U.S. is the biggest of the numbers, but multi platinum everywhere: U.K., Switzerland, New Zealand, Italy, Germany, Denmark, diamond in Canada. Which, by the way, don't get too excited. It's only a million, eh? You know the way that things are on scale with uh, RIAA platinum it's- in Canada is like gold here whatever it's population it's based on a percentage based on populations in comparison to the united states and it's platinum in austria 12 times platinum in australia again based on you know the the numbers there in argentina three times platinum it's one of the biggest selling albums of all time it's in the top five it varies uh elvis is in there elvis and the beatles and acdc and the eagles and and fleetwood michael jackson fleetwood max rumors and michael but these things are all the biggest selling albums of all time and the thing i think you just said a few minutes ago is most important is just about everybody likes it but almost just about everybody you know in your rock and roll universe and we live in one has it i have it in two form there i have it go. in cd and vinyl as well and yes, sir. i would love to know what their digital sales are on back in black as mm-hmm. well i don't know if the de- research department will be able to pull that up but i can get i'm going to try to pull albums. it up because i'm listening to you talk about it I'm going to bet that they do really well with streams because people put on Spotify and Pandora playlists. And I know uh-huh. so many runners who use ACDC's Back in Black album in some form or another as at least one song on their run or their walk or their bike ride or their walking you know on why? a treadmill you know why they or any it? of that. Because you know it's a it's fucking a great, great for- song and it makes your booty move. Ah, and it's 42 minutes, the perfect length for a jog or a quick workout, right? Absolutely. Do you remember where you were when you first heard this album and what you were doing? Do you remember the first time you heard it or thereabouts? Whenever the single got released in 1980, it was everywhere. And You Shook Me All Night Long was immediate Mm -hmm. for everyone. That's it. You're right. I mean, I remember all us squirrely little uh, hormone-changing boys just being like, well, why did you hear it? With their voices changing. You didn't even know what shook me all night long meant, and you still liked it. Oh, absolutely. Man, these guys are rocking and rolling, whatever that means. Let me ask you something. It, when you finally got the album and you're hanging out with all your buddies, your 14, 15-year-old buddies, and they do, let me put my love into you, what did you guys think they meant? We knew exactly what they meant. We figured ah! that one out right away, so... It didn't take long. Once you get the album and you start reading the liner notes and you really listen to it closely, you figure out what it's about right away. And at 15, your hormones are changing and you're so interested in sex. So you figure out what that stuff means. And then people have older brothers and sisters who tell you what it means or babysitters. You answer the question. Yep. Look, there's always questions and you want to be sure you get the answers from somebody who knows a little something. That was a little tougher on me being the oldest when when this, this kind of stuff would come. 
come up. But we digress, as we often do here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. I don't know about you, dude, but I'm starting to get thirsty. And I'm all out of coffee, so it's t- it might be time to head to Crooked Eye. Yeah, I think I'm ready for a pint from Crooked Eye. And for this one, I'd like to make a toast to all those older brothers and sisters and babysitters who turned us younger people on to music like this. Thank you so much. <laughs> Nothing quite quenches that thirst like a pint of crooked eye. Am I right, Marcus, or am I right? I would have to say the latter. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> yes, or right. Left, right, correct is all good. And that's because when you go in the crooked eye and you look at the board, you're always going to find something that makes you feel right. Right there in the heart of Hapro at York Road in Montgomery, go see the gang at Crooked Eye. It's all good, and it's all happening at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. The fact that Crooked Eye has survived the pandemic and done a great job staying open and taking all of the necessary precautions to keep everybody safe is a wonderful thing. And I think it's a testament to not only their business, but who they are as people. Well, we raise our pints to you, and now they're pouring at Jamie's House of Music in Lansdowne. That's not too far from you in Delaware County, right? That is true. It's right down the street, literally about two and a half, three miles from my pad. So live music and Crooked Eye near me, too. Jamie's House of Music does great work with live music, and they never had somebody there pouring, and now the Crooked Eye crew is there bringing all those delicious brews from Hapro. So Delaware County, come and check out Crooked Eye and the great tunes at Jamie's House of Music. All the details about all this on CrookedEyeBrewery.com, their website, and follow them on Facebook, too. Whenever you need a tasty pint, remember, Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro. It's back in black on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. And while he was embalmed after he passed, Bon Scott's body was later cremated and his ashes were interred by his family at the Fremonti Cemetery in Perth. So I guess there's not a whole lot of people going to visit his gravesite where his ashes are interred. I presume it's probably pretty difficult to get there. It's definitely expensive to go see his uh, gravesite if you live on this side of the pond. That's right. But people in Australia are going, nope, been there, mate. They got it. Well, we talked about it at the beginning of this episode, how ACDC thought about throwing in the towel. And you brought up the time they allegedly met Brian Johnson. He basically picked him out as the new vocalist. Hey, about like if I have, I ever die, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like that. They went right to work with him, Brian Johnson, right after they settled on him as the person to replace Bon Scott. And I don't know whether it was the time, the way it felt. I'd love to find out. Maybe Brian Johnson's book, which is coming out, will help to clarify how they got to it so quickly, at least that part, right? I found this little piece about how they chose Brian Johnson in an article on Consequence of Sound, where a decision was eventually made by the surviving members to carry on with former Geordie singer Brian Johnson officially being named Scott's successor on April 1st of that year. Soon after, a studio we talk about 
comes into play here. Johnson and his new bandmates and the producer, Mutt Lang, all congregated at Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas to get to work on their next album, which became Back in Black. Well, it looks like they made short work out of it, Marcus. The way that they go through April and May producing and to get it out at the end of July, the artwork was pretty straightforward and simple, right? The sentiment expressed in lack of color, basically. <laughs> the question is, how much more black could this album cover be? The answer is none. None more Nigel, black. Nigel, 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 <laughs> I told you a thousand times. <laughs> They just wanted to do something And I think the label wanted something different And the band was like, no, this is what we're doing It's tribute to Bon Scott It had to be And I think the material maybe lent itself to that Let's get right to it Because when you think about the songs We come back to the second half with Hell's Bells, right? And that's how they start the album Funeral Bells for their brother Bon But then it's off to the races They don't really fart around and sit and wallow in it Shoot the thrill which is basically, I think, really Brian Johnson's Here I Am World, Jump On Point, because Shoot the Thrill really shows the dynamics in his voice and shows that this band hasn't lost the nuts. didn't have that crooning style that Bon Scott had, man. They just came right out and walloped you upside the head with Brian Johnson's vocals. They just let it all out. The difference between the two guys and their singing style, there was a lot of crazy in Bon Scott, personally. And it's kind of like the Keith Moon factor, you know? And it came through in Keith's playing, but it also, with Bon Scott, came through in his voices. You could feel the manic mentality behind his delivery of a lot of the words in the songs. Mm -hmm. With Brian Johnson, it's like, here I am. I'm going to be like a punch in the face. Boom. Hey, did you like that? Here's another one. Boom. And it's song after song because shoot the thrills followed by what do you do for money, honey? I mean, you know, Seriously. you get as direct as you can with a song like that. It's also a little bit of a morality tale. Like, you know, how do you sell your soul for money? Yep. The riff of the sound behind the what do you do for money, honey, began during the Power Age era. George Young started playing that riff and started playing around with those notes during sound checks and warm-ups and band practice, and he just kind of held on to it and held on to it and kept playing it, and Bond never did anything with it, and then I think uh, Brian heard him playing it, and I think the band was like, hey, let's do something with it. You know, there really are some good stories behind these songs and how they were made. And how they were named, too, if you think about it. The next song on side one is Giving the Dog a Bone. It's been listed three different ways and two different ways on albums, right? Wikipedia lists it as given, like G-I-V-E-N. That means uh, like a gift, given. So giving the dog a bone, almost Shakespearean, right? Where giving the dog a bone could be taking you know, rather properly but the way brian sings it is given you know with the little apostrophe right yeah given the dog a bone which 
can be taken one of two or three different ways. A couple of which are kind of dicey. Kind of yeah. like, what do you do for your money, honey, or shoot the thrill? It's yeah. a, turning into a dicey side one. And I liked it when I first heard it because I'm thinking, well, they haven't lost their balls. And then let me put my love into you. Like I said to you and your 14-year-old friends, that opened a lot of eyes and ears to what was going on, right? This whole side one here. Let me put my love into you was the actual song on this album that made the PMRC's Filthy 15. What an accolade at the time. I think it probably helped with the teenage crowd because we really hated that. We were even the young adults and teenagers were uh, like, I don't need mom to tell me what to listen to. Absolutely. Fuck off. But also it was one of the two songs that Bon Scott had recorded or worked on on tape. So uh-huh. this one was already in the bank as far as ideas go. But the fact that it made the Filthy 15 is fantastic. And I remember watching the PMRC trials in Washington, D.C. I was at American University for a year and a half, and they had the trial on our closed-circuit cable system at the university. So we got to watch it live. It was amazing. It took all of this and put it right into the middle of the conversation the morality conversation of the time the funny thing is whenever everybody tries to get together and figure out what the morality is it never works it never takes it became a badge of courage for artists tipper gore and her gang says that we're foul put that sticker on my record bitch i don't care i'm gonna wear it proudly because that means i'm saying something that is controversial and is shaking shit up and that's the role of art since the beginning of the damn stuff i'm sorry am i pounding the table over here (laughs) (laughs) we haven't even gotten to the meatiest part of the album yet and that first side of the album all the way through is just a powerhouse it's as close to perfect as perfect gets as far as albums go and one of the top five ten party albums of all time because of that one of the things that you said when we start talking about this album before we put it on the board was how every party in the 80s included at least one side of back and black hold on a second marcus i gotta go flip the disc remember the <laughs> days when you're at a party either had to change the album or flip it over and this one that got no flip it over a lot right yeah. oh absolutely This was one of those party albums you listen to all the way through. How can you go wrong when it includes one of the biggest rock songs of all time? But first, the title track, Everybody Loves Back in Black. Everybody. Seriously, I've never met anybody who does not like that song. I'm curious if anybody listening to this podcast does not like this song. (laughs) (laughs) Even people who are tired of You Shook Me All Night Long love the title track. And that's the second song on side two. Uh, everybody in the world that has had to call it one of the 100 greatest songs of the 80s or of all time, mm-hmm. uh, greatest guitar solos, all that. It's all in there. It's all true. It's been in movies and in television shows. It's been all kinds of stuff. They've been in, you know, part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions, you name it. It's the anthem because, but face it, it's about uh, the same thing with uh, Queen. Get down, make love, right? It's, yeah. it's what it's about, you know, and, and, it, and it's base instinct, as we always talk about. That's the essence of rock and roll. Get down and do it. (laughs) Being that rock and roll is uh, old slang for having sex or getting your freak on, absolutely. 
So it was kind of perfect that that song became part of the uh, big finale in the Private Parts movie from Howard Stern, right? There they are on stage in the park playing the free concert. Just, you know, where they put themselves, you know, and and, and the, the places that they put themselves into. They've been all over the world and it's all because of these songs. So here we are in the middle of side two. One of the songs I play all the time on my syndicated show, Marcus, Have a Drink on Me. Come on, man. That's one of the greatest invites in the world. Hey, step up, lad. Have a drink on me. It's a party song. Every single song on this record is a party song. And this is the other song that was recorded or Bon Scott had played a little bit. I know he was point. all about the drink. You know? Absolutely. I mean, well, back in black, if you think about it, it's a celebration about living fast and cheating death, which is exactly what right. Bon Scott did for so long. I mean, that song is definitely the perfect celebration of his life, not a morning sad song. And then the, that's true. Seriously. And the vibe keeps going through the rest of the record. It's all celebration. The whole thing is like a hard rock second line like they do in New Orleans. It's really a celebration rather than a mournful dirge. And it closes with what really becomes ACDC in the Brian Jones era's anthem, their banner. Rock and roll ain't noise pollution. Rock and roll's just rock and roll. And that's really the essence of it. We're not doing anything fancy here, right? It's just rock and roll. And this song wasn't written until the very end. This is one of those songs that they were like, we need a final song for the record. And they, I guess, had talked about doing a filler song and they were like, no, 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 we need to end this album the right way. And they got meaty on it, put it together in like 15, 20 minutes as far as the basics, and then they crafted the song. And Mutt had a big part in helping them wrap this up. And in essence, while there's some different uh, hooks on the newest album, Power Up from ACDC, the quote that Angus gave uh, back around Ball Breaker, I think it was, a reporter said, Angus, you guys have made 12 albums that have basically sounded exactly the same as each other and and angus he kind of you know frowned up a little bit and says no that's not right it's 13 albums that we've made that sound exactly like each other so you you understand the the sense of who they are the cheekiness of it mm-hmm. the fact that a guy who's a couple of years older than me still feels good about going out on stage in his schoolboy's shorts outfit you know the, the little jacket and hat and shorts mm-hmm. tells me that if you don't get it at this point you don't get the joke stop trying you're gonna hurt yourself it's acdc and i'm so happy to talk about them and this album back in black on this episode of the podcast marcus like we've said about a hundred times while we've talked and many times when we've talked about needing to do this episode one of both of our absolute favorite albums always this is one of those albums that will never leave my favorites list i don't think it can i don't think it's possible for that to happen it's just that important it's one of those moments i think like the Beatles when they were first seen on the Ed Sullivan show. I think you have all these moments in time and history in rock and roll and ACDC's Back in Black as an album equals in a different way that moment that the Beatles had when they shook america you know we tend to romanticize all of this oh, totally. and and that's fine that's good i think it's part of the rock and roll mystique and, and it's why we're, we do this podcast we try to get to the truth about some things try to unravel some things but does it 
occurred to you that like when you're thinking initially about the ACDC back in black and the first few years you're listening to it, when you really are just listening and learning and feeling the music, doesn't it seem almost at odds with that music and them that they did this at Compass Point with the backdrop of the Caribbean? Because I'm thinking Dark Studio, England, something, you know, maybe even Australia, whatever. And here they are, <laughs> Compass Point, and their time off is spent, you know, bouncing on the beach and, uh, you know, uh, hanging out, enjoying the atmosphere, which in the Caribbean, 90% of the time is just unbelievable. Pretty cool uh, to, to look into this album and all the aspects of it, including a little look into uh, Mutt Lang, who, think about the uh, producer's points, right? 25 million U.S. alone. What's the producer's point, one point on that, or well, point and a half on that? Okay. And uh, was it for him one of those things where I'm doing the next record because I think it could help the guys, but turns out to be one of the greatest albums, one of the greatest jobs he ever did. Not to say, not to mention that Mutt, you know, would come along and produce some of the most amazing records for Def Leppard, the stuff he'd already done, but the things that would come down the line through the 80s and beyond. Producing is how he would meet his wife, Shania Twain. So, you know, <laughs> uh, an important part of this, not to be underestimated when you start thinking about how Back in Black came together the way it did, like a rock and roll phoenix, and then came together in the studio and was released and embraced so warmly by the world. <laughs> it was embraced hotly by the world. What an album. I hope after the pandemic we can see ACDC tour one more time. I know they just released a new album, but if you haven't seen ACDC, I highly recommend you add them to your bucket list of concerts you must see. You have to experience yep. it live. You it's just fun. To. It's, it's fun. fun. And it'll vary from when they did this album or it might align perfectly except for uh, Malcolm when they come through um you know, obviously he won't be with them and his his son is with them and he's done a great job. But when you did Back in Black, the new singer, Brian Johnson, Angus and Malcolm Young, Cliff Williams was on bass and Phil Rudd on drums. And uh, there's a revolving cast of characters in a couple different roles throughout the decades. But if they do come around, you'll definitely recognize the band on stage. Oh. They're loud. And they are one of the greatest bands in the world, ACDC. I'm so glad we did this, pal. Me too. I'm so glad we got a chance to break this album down because it's such a fun album all the way through. And it hits you right in the feels in every way. If you've got your favorites from Back in Black from ACDC, hit us up on email. It's imbalancehistory at gmail.com. Our social media kit is set to receive, so feel free to post them there on Facebook and on Twitter at Imbalance Histo and on Instagram, right? Absolutely. All good ways to reach out and touch us here at the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Just, you know, don't try to put your love into me, babe. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so until the next time we get together to crack jokes and crack mics. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. This is the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 